0: The year was 1194. The king had been away for four years. There was a usurper in the land. His name was John, John Lackland. For four years, the country was on the verge of civil war. But in February of 1194, the news then came from Germany, the great news, that the king was coming back. Richard de Soar, Richard the Lionheart. And heralds went through the cobblestone streets of London and Liverpool and Bristol and Manchester. There were heralds that then went through the muddy streets of villages from Kent to Cornwall to Northumbria. They were proclaiming the news. The good news is that the king is coming back. You see, on the way back from the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart had been captured by one of his opponents that had actually served in the Third Crusade alongside him, Leopold V of Austria, and then he was transferred into the hands of Henry VI, the emperor, and he was held hostage for 14 months for ransom, for 100,000 pounds silver. Now, if you convert that today, It's not an enormous amount of money. Some of you have that much money in your bank accounts. But if you convert it in real terms, and not just with inflation, but what it meant to the nation, it was two and a half times the governmental budget of England. And if you want to put that into context, folks, today that would be somewhere in the order of about 14, not million, not billion, but $14 trillion. Eleanor of Aquitaine helped to raise the money. And eventually, he was set free. (laughs) And Henry VI then sent word to to Prince John, watch out, the lion is loose. He's coming home. You see, the good news is the king was coming back. You know, this is one of the themes that runs through all of history. I remember when Calvin Miller came to Bedford Clyde, and he talked about the singer. And he told us that there's some great themes in literature. And he named three. One of those is the search for the Holy Grail. There are several of them. Meta-narratives, they are themes that run through all history. Some of you have read Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. It's very interesting. You know, that begins with the Fellowship of the Ring, Volume 1, then Volume 2 is the two towers, the two towers of evil. And, of course, many of you know the story. It's about the one, one ring that controls all of the other rings that are among the elves and the dwarves and the, and the humans, but not hobbits until a hobbit discovered, one and discovered the ring. And where we're moving in that trilogy is to the destruction of that ring to break the power of evil over all of Middle Earth. It's interesting. You might expect the third volume then to be called the destruction of the ring, but it's not. The third volume, many of you know, is what? The return of the king. The return of the Middle Earth king, Aragorn, who was king of Gondor and Arnor. This goes way back in history, folks. Odysseus had, had served in the trojan war and for 10 years then he has his odyssey as he returns back to his kingdom ithaca and penelope thinks that he is dead the return of the king is one of the great meta narrative stories in all of history you know homer wrote the odyssey we think somewhere around the 7th or 8th century it's not ironic that the great story about the return of the king was being written at that very time by a prophet named Isaiah. There's another meta narrative that this text this morning deals with, and that's why I'm mentioning this. And it's restoration of justice and peace. One of the great films of all time, The Seven Samurai produced and directed by Akira Kurosawa in 1954, tells the story about a time of civil war in the 16th century in Japan. And on the Aizu Peninsula, a village that has been marauded by robbers time and time and time again, and they then decide to hire seven samurai who are going to come and to bring, restore peace and justice to their village. It's one of the great meta-narratives that runs throughout all of history. If you've ever seen the uh, Magnificent Seven, that is the American version of the Seven Samurai, and then later Star Wars is built on much the same model, and in the next decade, the uh, Predator movie, and then most recently, Mad Max. You see these things run through history. Two great themes, the return of the king and the restoration of peace, the restoration of justice. And this very brief passage this morning that we see from Matthew, the 10th chapter, deals with both of those themes. And Jesus, after he has looked out there and seen the people that are distressed and they look like sheep without a shepherd, and he urges his disciples to pray for our workers to go into the harvest field, then Matthew, the 10th chapter, begins with his then identifying the 12 disciples that are going to be his inner circle. And he tells them that he gives them authority to heal and to cast out demons. And then he begins to give them instructions. And they begin this way. And as you go, preach. As you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. You know, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee for some time now. We don't know how long it's been. And he has done these things. He has preached throughout Galilee, and he has taught in their synagogues, and he has preached the news of the kingdom of God. He has healed every kind of disease and sickness. He has exorcised demons. We even have the example of his exorcising the Gadarene demoniac by this time he has raised Jairus's daughter he has raised the dead and now he sends out the disciples in chapter 10 he has recognized the need for the harvest and for the workers to go and he commissions them as we said to cast out demons and to heal and then he begins what some would call the second discourse in the book of Matthew the first one being of course the sermon on the mount And in this discourse, in this set of teachings, which sounds remarkably like a sermon, he gives instructions about what to do. He gives warnings about how hard and difficult it's going to be as he sends them out among wolves. And then he challenges them about discipleship. It's not going to be an easy road. There are four parallel passages to this One that we have today are close parallels. One is found in Mark, the third chapter, where he again identifies and authorizes the twelve to go and preach and exercise demons. But then you have to go to Mark, the sixth chapter, before he actually sends them out. And he sends them out from Nazareth in pairs to preach and to heal and to exorcise. So Matthew 3 and Matthew 6. In Luke 9 and 10, we have two other passages that are parallel or near parallel. In Luke, the ninth chapter, it is almost the same thing that we find in Matthew, the tenth chapter, where he sends the ten out, but in the the twelve out. But in Luke, the tenth chapter, he sends out the seventy, and he commissions them to go beyond the Jews, to go beyond the children of Israel, and he places no restrictions on them as they go to heal and to preach the kingdom of God. This morning from this brief passage, one thing that I see is that the Lord is telling us to preach the kingdom. He's telling each one of us that we have a responsibility to preach the kingdom. It is not just the preacher, it's not just the pastor who stands behind the pulpit, but we all have a responsibility to preach the kingdom and to do it in two ways, to do it with words and to do it with action. And when we do that, he's also encouraging us to embrace a very radical message, to embrace the radical message of the kingdom, because the kingdom message is radical. And it goes beyond what we typically call the gospel, that is, we can be saved by the grace of God through believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That, that's the heart of the gospel, that's true. But the kingdom message is broader and bigger than that. You notice that Jesus goes out preaching the good news of the what? The good news of the kingdom. And we must embrace and share that radical message. We also see that we don't just speak it. We need to demonstrate and we need to share the kingdom itself. As we go out to preach with both words and action, look at what it said at the beginning. This is in Matthew, the 10th chapter. We're looking at verse number 7 and 8. What does it say? As you go. As you go, preach. Preaching, sharing the gospel, is an everyday, everywhere activity. It's where we go. In the byways and highways of life. We know that. We see it in the Great Commission. The command in the Great Commission is not go. You know that. In the Great Commission, as you are going then and then The imperative is to make disciples. And it's the same thing here. The beginning and the end of Matthew are the same. You see, it is an everyday, everywhere activity where when we go, wherever we go, we're to do it. Preaching or proclaiming takes different forms and different agents or agencies as well. We see that here. Preaching goes beyond just proclaiming because the word Preach means, yes, to proclaim. It means to stand behind the pulpit and to speak the Word of God. It means to speak prophetically. It's the thing that ministers do, but God calls each one of us to be a minister. God calls each one of us in the priesthood of all believers to do this. So proclaiming the word caruso also means it's not just to stand behind a pulpit. It means to herald. It's like those heralds that went through the villages and the towns in England, and they told people in an excited way, the king is coming back. They had a glorious message to share, and we do too. It means to announce. It means to publish. So it's not just done by word alone. Proclaiming verbally. Proclaiming in print proclaiming in person, face to face, proclaiming publicly from pulpits, proclaiming through media, modern media, proclaiming through multimedia, many faceted ways to proclaim the gospel, and it's reinforced by the other thing that Jesus always did. He not only preached the good news, he taught it, teaching, and he witnessed So Jesus calls all of us to participate in this command that he gives his 12 disciples and then later the 70. And that is, in every form or fashion, wherever we go, every day, everywhere, every one of us is to employ every means that we can. This begins to sound like Paul, doesn't it? Yeah. He used all means so that he might reach some for the good news of Jesus Christ. Preaching also needs to be demonstrated by action. You know, the prophets performed miracles, and Jesus performed miracles, and the disciples performed miracles, and that they were acts that were empowered by God. God did it. He used them as their instruments to illuminate and to validate the message that they were sharing as they were proclaiming. And so when they go out and they do these things, like they cleanse lepers and they, they heal, they exercise demons, they raise the dead, It wasn't for the purpose of performing some magnificent act so people would go, wow, it was to do what? It was to illuminate the message of the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and to validate what they were saying. And in addition to that, the disciples had to live a life that was consistent with the message. So preaching is not just speaking, we see here. Preaching is also acting out in everyday life, the way we live, our character and also the actions that God calls us to perform, to validate the truth of the message that we're speaking, and to shine forth the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus did this. Jesus set the example of this every day, everywhere, every person, not just speaking, but acting. Matthew, the ninth chapter, just before this, if you look probably near the top of the page, in verse 35, Before Jesus looks out there and sees those that are dispirited, says that Jesus was going, you see, as he went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You see, his was an everyday, everywhere activity. As he was going along, he would stop and he would use a fig tree for a parable. Wherever he went... He was teaching, he taught in the synagogues, but he also taught in the countryside. He preached a sermon on a mountain. He fed them on the side of a hill. He used different forms. Yes, he preached, technically he preached, and he also taught, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching, proclaiming was his priority. You know, in Luke the fourth chapter, He then begins his ministry in the book of Luke and he announces what he is about. And he begins by quoting Isaiah 61. And at the very beginning, he says, I am anointed. I am anointed. And in priority at the top of the list, he says, I'm anointed to do what? To preach, to preach the gospel to the poor. This is what drove him. It was his purpose. You know, he he tried to retreat one morning away from the rest of the disciples to get some rest. And everybody was looking for him. And Peter comes to him and says, Lord, don't you know everybody's looking for you? Instead of Jesus saying, look, I'm tired. Leave me alone. Let me have some rest. He sits up and he says, let's go. Let's go to the other villages and towns. Let's find somewhere else so I can preach. Because you see that is my purpose that is why I have come preaching with Jesus was a priority and if it was a priority with him it should be a priority with us proclaiming the gospel for him was also confrontational you know how many sermons are recorded in the Gospels I'm not really sure you know we know the Sermon on the Mount one way to do this and I don't know if if it's the best way is to go and look at wherever Jesus was preaching and it says that he talks to the crowds, not, not just when he's talking to his disciples, that's usually teaching, and not when he's confronted with the Pharisees, that's usually a smaller group. And there were many of those occasions, but there's several occasions where he's talking to the crowds, and then you have a big red letter uh, portion, where he then does more than teaching. I went through the Gospels this week, and I searched for those. I found found 11 of them. And I know there's some scholars that would say, well, no, that was teaching. That's the other thing. His teaching and preaching kind of bled over. But the 11, if you look at them, each one of those, there was either a theological uh, contradiction or a confrontation with their theological uh, preconceptions. He was opposing their human traditions, their hypocrisy, or their insincerity and their infidelity. You see, Jesus' preaching led eventually to some kind of friction. It led to some kind of confrontation. His inaugural sermon in Luke, the fourth chapter. After the sermon then, well, during the sermon, he starts talking about how the Gospels also go to the Gentiles. And it ended up in what? They tried to stone him. The Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. He was challenging them. He was challenging them against vain religious acts that they were performing, thinking that they could earn their way into the kingdom. He was challenging their misinterpretations of the law. Look at John, the sixth chapter. There's another sermon. He's fed the 5,000. He's grown across the lake. He's gone across the sea, and they follow him there. And then he gives the, quote, discourse on the bread. That sounds remarkably to me like a sermon. And what happened at the end of that sermon? Many left him. Many abandoned him because you see the hard sayings that he had in his sermon. You must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. Look at his tribute to John the Baptist. He's talking to the crowds there after he speaks to the disciples of John. And at the end of that, he rebukes the people for their childish behavior, their childish rejection of both Jesus and John. There are three more sermons where the crowds come to him and they listen to him like he's preaching a sermon where He has already addressed the Pharisees. Three confrontations that he speaks to the crowd about, about the Pharisees, refuting their purity codes. And he turns to the crowd and he says, No, it isn't what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out. And what he's telling them is, You need to be pure inside. He pronounces the eight woes upon the Pharisees, but folks, when you look at Matthew the 23rd chapter, it's a sermon. He is preaching to the crowds. He rebukes the Pharisees for demanding signs, and then he tells the crowd, I will give you a sign, and he gives them the sign of Jonah. There are two more of these kinds of sermons where he preaches the kingdom of God. The other evening, Chris Gardner preached from Matthew the 13th chapter. Some of those sermons, as he very rightly pointed out, are addressed to the crowds and some of them are teachings to the disciples. But when you also look at Mark, the fourth chapter, and Luke, the eighth chapter, the parallel passage, you will see that there were six parables that he preached to the crowds, warning them that they better not just hear what he's saying, but listen, because I'm speaking in parables. In Luke, the twelfth chapter, he preaches another sermon, emphasizing readiness and warning them It's good news that the king is coming again, but he also warns them with that comes judgment. And the last two of the sermons that I found were invitational sermons. He calls the crowds to discipleship. And he says, if you're going to follow me, it's not just to his disciples. He says, it's to crowds. He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And then in Luke, the 14th chapter, he then challenges them in another sermon to count the cost of discipleship. I hope that what you heard in those 11 sermons of Jesus was it always led to some kind of confrontation of the good news with the hearers and challenged them to take action. He also taught. He didn't just preach. He taught in the synagogues. This is his typical everyday activity of communicating his message. He was known as teacher, as rabbi. You look at Mark, you look at Luke. In both those gospels, 28 times, in those short books. He is referred to as teacher or rabbi, or he is teaching. And he often taught in what form? Parables, parables. Because the secret of the kingdom of God is given to you, but to those that don't want to listen and don't want to obey, they won't understand. And his preaching and his teaching overlapped. You know, some say that there are five discourses in the book of Matthew. And the first of those discourse teachings is the Sermon on the Mount. His teaching and his preaching overlapped with each other. But his teaching always was characterized by this. When he finished, people were what? They were amazed at what he said. People ought to be amazed when we share with them the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. His authority exceeded that of the scribes, the teachers of the law. And another characteristic of it was, as I've already said, the gospel of the kingdom was confrontational. It scandalized everybody that heard it. He also demonstrated by action, not just every day, everywhere. He also took action, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You see, these miracles validated that he was the Christ, the Messiah, and it confirmed that his message was from God. And he did four kinds of miracles, typically. He healed, he raised the dead, he cast out demons, and he cleansed lepers. That's exactly what he's calling his disciples to do. And he set the example. It was also a matter of his personal lifestyle. It wasn't just what he did, it's who he was. So, you know, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that he kept the law perfectly, sinlessly, So, it was a matter of just demonstrating the message by his lifestyle, and he modeled as an example what he was speaking. So at the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper, what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet, and then he looks at them and he says, I am setting for you a what? An example. Paul, later, when he's writing to Corinthians, uses this as one of his teaching points. Paul says to them, follow my example, not just what I say but follow my example. Well, who is Paul to say that? What else does he say? Follow my example just as I have followed the example of Jesus Christ. See, see Jesus didn't just say and teach and preach and act. He also demonstrated by example. But friends, example and action by itself falls short. An exemplary life, Keeping the law. And we still do keep the law in respect of what God commands us to do. Being obedient, being exemplary is not enough. You know, Francis of Assisi supposedly said this, and you know the quote, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Well, the problem with that, folks, is I I, I believe we need to set an example, and I, I think we can communicate the gospel in our example, but the problem with that is apparently Francis never said it. We can't find it recorded anywhere that Francis said it. Not only that, Francis was one of the foremost gospel preachers of his age. He preached passionately. He spoke the word of God passionately. You see, that's what the mendicants did. That's what the Franciscans and the Dominicans did. They were known as preaching orders, not just serving orders. And Francis's ministry amongst the people demonstrated the words that he was speaking. They were not a substitute for it. My point is this, folks. It's not enough when we go out in the world and we say, well, I'm just going to live a good life and let people watch me, and therefore they're going to believe the gospel, folks. They won't know the gospel unless we explain it to them. Miracles even will not convince them. If you walk out tomorrow and you turn water to wine, which you won't do, that will not convince them. Jesus said the very same thing. If they don't listen to Moses, if they don't listen to the prophets, he said, when he was speaking about uh, Lazarus and the rich man, at the end of that parable, he said, if they don't don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not be persuaded even if one is raised from the dead. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, folks, and there is a world out there that doesn't believe it. There needs to be communicated explicitly the message. Nothing substitutes, nothing substitutes for the utterance that we have on our lips that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to communicate God's message. Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is jealous because they performed this miracle and healed the man that was lame at the gate called beautiful. They are jealous of that, but the thing that strikes fear in their hearts is the message. It's what they're saying. And what do, they, what do they ask them? By what authority or in whose name are you speaking these things? And when they tell them it's Jesus, they tell them to do what? They don't say don't go out and perform any miracles. They say shut up. Shut your mouth. Don't speak. That's what they were afraid of. And you know what happened? They called him back again and said, didn't we tell you, after you went out and did it again, didn't we tell you not to speak the message? And you know what the disciples said. They didn't say, we can't stop performing miracles. They said, we cannot help it. We cannot avoid speaking about what we have seen and heard. Friends, this point I think is very important. As we go out as workers in the harvest field, It is imperative, yes, that we set an example. It's imperative that we serve people. It's imperative that we demonstrate the gospel. But there's no substitute. There's no substitute for speaking it explicitly. A couple of other points. We need to embrace and share the radical kingdom message. It scandalized everybody, folks. Scribe and Pharisee. It scandalized the Sadducees and the high priest. It scandalized the Herodians and the Romans. It scandalized the Greek-speaking and Aramaic Jews, everybody, because it defied religious traditions, it threatened political power, it overturned the social and economic status quo, and it challenged the philosophic worldview of the pagans and the Jews that day and their skepticism. When we go preach the good news, we embrace a radical kingdom message, and that is the king will return. The king is coming again. What does this mean? The king will reign, God is sovereign over all creation, and his son is going to return in victorious glory. Do you believe it? The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not even give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. Do you expect that? That's part of what the kingdom is about. He's coming back, and he will send forth his angels to the four winds, and he will collect the elect from the four corners of the earth. And the harvest will go from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heavens. Folks, the king is coming back, and he will redeem everything. He will restore everything to God's original purpose. And the current world order will pass away, and there'll be a new world order, folks. The kingdom message, the kingdom message is broader and bigger than the very important message that it's at its center, and that is that Jesus Christ can save you. It's bigger than that, though, you see. His reign will be righteous. He will judge the living and the dead. He will reestablish justice and mercy. Isaiah was writing at the same time Homer was writing. And what does he say about this king? He says, there will be no stopping. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness From then, forevermore. You see, Isaiah was writing about the real king. He's coming again, and his reign will be righteous, and all creation will be at peace. All of creation eventually will be reconciled to the Father. All of his creatures that are in the kingdom will be in harmony with one another, and the whole cosmos in the kingdom of God then will be in unison in serving God's will and purpose. And Jesus says something very radical here. He says, the kingdom is at hand. It is right here. This has been his course message from the very beginning. He went into Galilee and his first message, and it runs through everything that he preached, is the time is now. The time is fulfilled. The time is at hand. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. There's an immediacy about this. We do not know when the Lord is going to come. It can come before I finish this next sentence. We say, no, it's not going to because it hasn't for thousands of years. But, folks, it can and it will. Someday the Lord is going to come and it is going not only to amaze and shock people, it's going to cause some of them great grief and others great joy. But this, this immediacy is also about intimacy. Jesus in the Luke, in Luke the 17th chapter says, the kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is in you. You see, he has already planted the seeds of the kingdom and it is growing in the hearts and the minds and the souls of believers who go out and plant the gospel seed. There's something about embracing this radical message that is very important. Not only should we speak it explicitly, but we need to be warned that it will meet resistance. You see, we're in good company when we go out there and we share the good, the good news. We're in good company when we f- at first maybe feel intimidated because we know that it's going to be confronted by people. Jesus said, if the world hates you, just remember this. It hated me first. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, in the Beatitudes, of course, he says, rejoice and be glad when you do this, when you share the kingdom. Rejoice and be glad when you face tribulation and trials, when you face opposition, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we need to speak the message very clearly. We need to understand that it is about the king coming and a whole transformation of all reality, and it's going to meet resistance. The world doesn't believe it. And finally, we need to demonstrate and share the kingdom. Heal the sick raise the dead, cleanse lepers and cast out demons. Words aren't enough. Now there's the other side of the message. We need to demonstrate by our behavior and our actions. They need to match and illustrate our words. Jesus did it. He healed, he raised the dead, he cleansed the leper and he cast out demons. 26 times in the gospels, we have explicit examples of those four things happening. But he did it every day. Much more than 26 times. And he called his apostles to do the same thing. And they went out and they did these things. They cleansed the lepers. They healed. They preached the good news. And they came back and they reported to him. And they had great joy. And then later we find Paul raising the dead, Tabitha. And we find uh, Paul raising Eutychus and Peter raising Tabitha. So this begs the question, what does that mean today? What does that mean today? I do believe that miracles can still happen. I do believe that God can perform miracles and he has human agents that can do them. I believe that healing can happen. I believe that cleansing can happen. I do believe that exorcism can happen, but it's pretty rare. He doesn't call most of us to do that every day. Raising the dead, I believe that the gospel, the life-giving gospel enables people to be born again and born from the deadness of their sins. The point in this, folks, isn't, is he expecting you tomorrow to go out and cleanse a leper? No, the point is, put no limits on what God can do through you. Put no limits on what God can do through you. Put no limits on the gifts that you have and how God can use them to demonstrate his power through the gospel. You see, that's the way God usually works today. He works through the common graces of your ministries. You may bring healing to a sin-sick soul. You may bring relief to a depressed person that is besieged by spiritual oppression. There are many things that you may do as you go out and proclaim the good news. We need to act. We need to use our gifts, and we need to put no limits on God. And the reason for this is very simple. Freely we have received, freely give. What does that mean? I think it means three things. Number one, you have abundantly received, you must abundantly give. Give all of what God has given. I think it also means that we have been set free. And if we have been set free, freely we have received, we need to communicate the message that sets others free. But the heart of the message is this. You've received this as a gift by the grace of God. You've received the salvation of Jesus Christ and redemption and eternal life. You have been rescued from sin and sickness You have been rescued from the wages of sin, which is eternal death. You have received that freely. You have no right to hold on to it. You must freely give it away, give it all away. So as we think about workers going into the harvest field, friends, I think this sermon says this to me. God calls us, each one of us, wherever we go to step outside our comfort zone. God may be calling you to step outside your comfort zone this week. To speak when the Holy Spirit gives you utterance to communicate whenever the opportunity comes to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our actions then should reveal the words to be true. Our character, we must act in consonance with those words. And when we do, folks, we communicate a radical message of the kingdom, which is going to be confronted by the world. Don't be discouraged. Do not grow weary in well doing. Don't be discouraged. For you see, God will take that gospel seed, and He'll find somebody else to water it and somebody else to nurture it, and God will bring the increase. We need to remember it's a privilege, it's a gift, a gift that we have received freely. And we need to minister freely in the kingdom of God. Wherever you go this week, God may provide an opportunity for each one of us to share the good news of the kingdom. He's coming back. He's coming back. And before he comes back, you have an opportunity to receive him as Lord and Savior. He's coming back. And we don't like to say this, but it's the truth. He's coming back. And if he comes back, and you have not received him as Lord and Savior, you will spend eternity in a darkness separated eternally from God. The choice is yours. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And that's confrontational, friends. But we received it freely. We need to give it freely because we love the people that he calls us to communicate the gospel to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the great gift of the good news of the kingdom, that we are children of the king. We anticipate eagerly his coming back. Let us never be lazy, let us never be indulgent, let us never relax, thinking that that's never going to happen. Let us live our lives with eager anticipation, expecting the king to come back immediately in Jesus Christ's name. We